This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the Australian Museum and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's wonderful to see you here for the first session of our 2019 Lunchtime Conversation series, exploring Australians who've shaped our nation and featuring the 200 treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery. My name is Sue Saxon, I'm creative producer here in our programming department. And I'm so proud of this rich season which showcases the extraordinary contribution of six exemplary Australians across technology, medicine, art, architecture, literature and human rights. We'll be exploring the vision and legacy of Charles Perkins, Dr Terry Percival, Gabby Hollows and Professor Fred Hollows, Albert Namajira and Glenn Merkett. And today, Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay is joined by world-renowned Australian author and national treasure, Tom Keneally. Kim was appointed to the director's role in April 2014 and is the first woman to hold the role in the AM's 190-year history. She's initiated an impressive transformation program, including enshrining free general admission for children into government policy in, and constructing new award-winning spaces, including the Crystal Hall Entry Pavilion, Westpac Long Gallery, as, and has established the Australian Museum Centre for Citizens and Science, part of the Australian Museum Research Institute, which we um, call AMRI. And of course, the new 57 million restoration starting soon. As always, there'll be an opportunity for your questions. So have them ready, and please join me now in welcoming Kim McKay. Thanks so much, Sue, and welcome to you all. I just would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we've gathered on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And I'm very pleased to say that here at the Australian Museum we have an amazing team of emerging young First Nations people. I was up in Alice Springs last week with them uh, at the National Museums Conference where they presented some of their recent work and uh, including the Gaddy exhibition that some of you might have seen last year, which talked about the Gadigal people of Sydney and revealed some of their stories for the first time. And I'm very pleased to say the Gaddy exhibition that they created uh, won the prize for the best small exhibition. So we're very proud of our First Nations team here at the museum. And of course, we're the custodian of one of the most significant uh, First Nations collections in Australia and a lot of that is housed here on site. So today we are in for an amazing treat. As Sue said, uh, our conversation series kicks off today with the fantastic Thomas Keneally and uh, all of the people that we're profiling through the series, both last year and this year, are featured among the 100 people who helped shape the nation in the Westpac Long Gallery as part of our 200 Treasures exhibition. I do want to just start out by saying some people said, wrote to us and said, why are there no women featured this year? <laughs> there are women featured. Um, uh, Fred Hollows, of course, is no longer with us and Gabby Hollows is stepping in to represent him. Albert Namatajira, the wonderful uh, First Nations artist, is no longer with us either. And so, in fact, um, the leading expert on Albert Namatajira, a woman who runs Indigenous collections, at the National Gallery in Canberra is coming up to represent the family and, and to be in discussion with him. And of course, um, this year we're also looking to um, focus a bit on technology. And historically, of course, women weren't counted very much in Australian history. And I'm very proud to say in the gallery here, you will find more women on that list than any other list in Australia and more First Nations people on the list than any other existing list in Australia. So we're very pleased with uh, what we're trying to do here at the Australian Museum. And with that, I'm going to start to introduce Tom. I'm going to sit down. Tom, come up here, Tom. Please welcome Thomas Keneally.
And in my sort of welcome, I'll just um, point out some of your extraordinary achievements. You've written more than 40 novels, screenplays, memoirs and non-fiction books. You've won all the major literary prizes, including two Miles Franklin Awards, the Scripter Award from the University of Southern California, the Mondello International Prize, the Gold Medal of the University of California, the Helmerich Prize in the US, as well as a Logie Award, an AFI Award, the Critics Circle for your screenplays, and it goes on. You've been made a literary lion of the New York Public Library. I'm turning the page. <laughs> the American Academy, recipient of the University of California Gold Medal, and your dial is now on a 55 cent Australian stamp too, I believe. Mm -hmm. Lucky we don't have to lick them anymore, right? That, that's right. The Tom Keneally Centre opened in August 2011. And your latest book, Two Old Men Dying, was published just last year. And it has Fred as a character. And Fred's a Well, Fred was a character, wasn't he? Yeah. I, feel, yes. I feel quite blessed in life to have known Fred a bit. So. Yes. And Gabby will be dynamite. She's, yeah, she's a amazing. formidable woman and a great raconteur. She sure is. She sure is. So next month, I believe you're travelling to Prague to receive the Trebia Prize for artistic achievement from the governments of the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And as you've said about yourself on occasion, not bad for a boy from Homebush. <laughs> well, sadly, in Prague, they're going to have the Prague Symphony. They'd have the Homebush Pipe Band if they could get it, but they're booked out. <laughs> I just have to put up with the ho-hum <laughs> of the... <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been very lucky, you know, Kim, very lucky. Well, you... and, and this museum was part of my life. Well, I wanted to ask you about that just to start off with, to, so we talk about ourselves a bit more, I guess. Um, you've got an order of Australia, you've been named a living treasure, and you're here, of course, on our list of our 100 treasures people. Um, what role has the museum played in your life? Because you said to me you came here as a boy. Yes, we used to come here every school holidays. Uh, and uh, so it was one of the first places that I started to bring my uh, uh, daughters. I brought one of them so young that she had a little um, urinary accident in front of her. Uh, uh, and um, the... I think I had one of those as a child. <laughs> yes, and, and uh, of course the skeletons hold great power over children. The skeletons of huge beasts, um, whales and elephants, and the, um, there were, were very graphic exhibits on Aboriginal people that have been taken down because they've proved to be... Uh, th they've been superseded by later research. But they were a great stimulus to the imagination too. Um, and then the megafauna and the crystals, of course. The crystals were fabulous and they were nowhere else. Uh, the... Uh, Australia of Chifley and early Menzies was not known for its spectacular crystals. Um, and uh, so it, it had a powerful impact on my imagination, but my, I brought my daughters here a lot, and recently uh, I've brought grandchildren here a lot, both when they used the play centres, which are great, and and then when they got on to looking at things. Um, and my grandson liked your, the way you've done the living treasures thing, the way you can... Oh, the interactive digital The interactive. Wall. And he was playing with it. I was here one Saturday and a family turned up at the display next door and then they noticed a resemblance between the exhibit and me. They became... Very excited, and and, and uh, my grandson put put the uh, encounter in perspective by saying, "Well, he said to them, 
He writes books, you know. <laughs> if, you're, if you're low enough to write books, you could. And <laughs> now, you mentioned, you mentioned megafauna, and we were just talking about that, because that yeah, is... the megafauna is, yeah, very big part of the imagination. And it's part of your latest book as well, isn't it? Yeah, my latest book is about a contemporary old man dying and uh, Mungo Man dying. I call him Learned Man. But, of course, Mungo Man died 42,000 mm. years ago and we have evidence just from what's around him that he had contact with two other human communities, one beyond the Darling and the other on the upper reaches of the... Um, Murrumbidgee, and his is the first ritual burial of a human that we have, of Homo sapiens. And so I tried to make up a story about why he was ritually buried, why the community felt the necessity to use ochre that came from 200 miles away beyond the Darling to anoint him. And... Uh, that's what the book's about, whereas the contemporary man just dies of an operation which at the time I'd researched. It was only after I finished the book I found out I had to have it. <laughs> and so I had it last year and survived okay. And through no merit was cured of drinking and weight. Through no, without even trying, no without even trying. of virtue <laughs> at all. But you're okay now. Uh, y yes, indeed, a little bit. Uh, the Prague thing is my first overseas trip, but I, I think I'm, I'm up to it. Good on you. I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear uh, that. So uh, I've been very fortunate. Again, well, yet again, the luck will run out. <laughs> but, uh, well, it will for all of us, I guess. Yeah. I, mu I must say one of your... Um, uh, fellow luminaries in the Treasures Gallery is, of course, Bob Hawke. And we put yes. a little black ribbon across his portrait um, after he passed away last week. And, you know, they're, 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 when you talked about not that's being many... very, very nice of you, Kim. That's a yeah, <laughs> that's good guy. <laughs> well, I knew him quite well. And I, I think um, he was such a great Australian in so many respects. And you said about the crystals not being evident in the early years of Curtin and so forth. Well, he was a shining light, that's yes, for sure, wasn't were, he? Yes, there were crystalline excitements in his regime. Exactly. But look, your resilience is quite remarkable, given you grew up um, in an Irish Catholic family here and spent your formative years in towns like Kempsey, Tari and Warhope. What was that like? Well, it was very much a town... One was very aware of the um, Aboriginal equation. We didn't even know the name of the tribe. It was Thangadi. Uh, and, of course, the recently retired great um, South Sydney centre. Um, gee, I've had a senior moment. Greg Inglis, who's just retired, was a Thangadi. Uh, and... Uh, that was very much part of the town because the Aboriginals were in the cinema in the front stalls. Um, I'm writing about that now, about the relationship between the Aboriginals and a gay pianist, another kind of marginal figure, a gay pianist. There was a gay pianist in the Campsie um, uh, Cinema, whom my father knew, called uh, Chicken Weeks. And Magnificently, he was called Chicken Weeks because he could hypnotise chickens. So uh, uh, I'm writing about a gay cinema pianist. Who now, the... that, that shows no senior moments on your part because your memory must be so good to, to think back then <laughs> to Casey. Yeah. I was born in 1935, but I remember the Friday afternoon coming to town. And the other thing I try to do is imagine what happened if you're a pillar of society... Kempsey took it very, itself very seriously then. And there were big people from upriver who were connected to the professional people in town. So say your husband's a, prof a member of the professions and you're walking along Smith Street or Belgrave Street, Kempsey, in 1933 
and you see a Thungutty half-caste kid with, with undeniably your husband's features. This must have happened to a number of women, and the question is, what did they do from there on? So that, that is in there, uh, this novel I'm writing at the moment. But, but the one about um, uh, Fred, I, I, I described Fred going to uh, Eritrea, where I saw him in operation, and he, he installed a situation in Eritrea which still works. And you know, he, he said, yeah, you said I was a bloody wild colonial boy. I'm, I'm not a wild colonial boy, I'm an anarcho-syndicalist. And he is an anarcho-syndicalist. The book sets out to prove that. But he also was on the look for what happened in Mungo's day. In Mungo's day, we had a cognitive leap forward. We had pretty fancy brains like the Neanderthals before, but we had a, a extra powers of, of abstraction round about 70 BC. And that enabled us to take the next step and imagine nation, political parties, all the good, good, the yummies that have come our way since. Uh, and, uh, and religion, advances in religion, advances in poetry. And uh, Fred, Fred thought it might be possible that we could make another cognitive leap forward. And when he encountered the Eritrean rebels, he thought they were on the way. He, he thought, he raised the possibility that they were on a new evolutionary tangent. And uh, visiting that civil war, it's, it's about a, a filmmaker traveling with Fred in that, uh, during that war and seeing how he puts together these teams which still operate in the third world, wouldn't be permitted here, but he, he put together surgical teams that are still traveling throughout East Africa, uh, working on people's cataract blindness. Now, so I'm gonna draw you back point. just a bit to your childhood ah, yeah. because we Baby wandered would, off a yeah, bit there. That's yeah. all right. I do that, it's I called, called um, pre-dementia uh, geriatric <laughs> syndrome. <laughs> It's pretty good, though, to be a wanderer, I think. Now, I know your parents instilled an amazing sense of social justice in you. Yeah, Can that's true. Can you tell true. us a bit about how that happened and them? Well, there was a kind of um, Irish working-class people around then, like a lot of people my age remember their parents of being like that, they had a great belief in Australian utopianism and social justice, and they were to the left of any Labour bloke man now. They, they say this last program was too left-wing to sail. Hawkey could have sold it. Hawkey would have involved everyone. He would have had the head of the business council consenting to radical socialist reforms, you know. Uh, and, but it was, it was not to be. Uh, the, we, we had, as we now know, and as he'd admit himself, the wrong salesman. But um, uh, they were, therefore, very up the workers and very social justice, but they also were members of this totally totalitarian and dictatorial church. But in a way, it was who they were. They were blamed for being, and at that stage of history, you were blamed for being a Catholic, so you clung to it all the more. Persecution is very good for religion. If you want to reduce the impact of a religion, tolerate it. <laughs> and, uh, and it becomes purely theological, and people begin to think, oh, I wonder did the virgin birth really happen, instead of clinging to it because it identifies you. Um, and well, you uh, went on, of course, to be educated at St. Patrick's at Manly. Yeah, and, and which go is to the where seminary. Tony there. Abbott went. I know, but not at the same time. No, he, he was uh, <laughs> a, a younger man. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I went with uh, 
Brian Giles in there with some notable figures, including your former partner. Yeah, business you... partner, yeah. Yeah. Mick... Uh, I great... was in business with Mick Harfield, who was father Mike of Mick Mike Harfield, a handsome man. Yeah. Who ended up, I mean, he did what... Um, you see, if you're... Sex in Catholicism is a weird entity, as you know. So they tell you to that to if you look at the reflection of a high school girl's bloomers in her patent leather shoes, you're going to hell. <laughs> so intelligent blokes like Mick Harfield and uh, the Kennedys say, John Fitzgerald Kennedy say, well, if I'm going to go to hell, I'll get my money's worth and go out with, with Marilyn Monroe. That's right, because Mick Harfield married, and Mick married Harfield a former married Miss Australia. Australia. <laughs> yeah. Which and, is and the Pope, hilarious. And the Pope, <laughs> the Pope gave him a dispensation to get married in the Catholic Church, which is unheard of for a former and, uh, priest to be able to do that. But Brian Johns was in there, who was a great Australian. Yeah. You may have... He headed the ABC, he headed SBS. He was head of the copyright agency too which holds all the money, uncollected money, for copyright holders for things like uh, photocopying mm -hmm. and, and uh, other uses of copyright. And uh, he uh, was, of course, the publisher at Penguin for quite a time and a remarkable human being. And he and a fellow who's still a priest, uh, whom I always tell to stop drinking because he has to bury me yet. He has to last. <laughs> Eddie Campion. Oh. Eddie Campion, who's an historian and a gentleman, and uh, uh, we founded a literary society, and they didn't, they were very uneasy about it. They thought we were reading Graham Greene, and we were. Um, and uh, uh, so Brian Johns left before me. I was trying to be both literary and a good. Catholic, uh, which is a test, but anyhow. What, um, what, Im what impact did being in the seminary and being a good Catholic have on your writing? Uh, well, it certainly makes me interested in moral issues, you know. We had these books of, uh, written by Spanish Jesuits of moral theology, and they would put up case stories, you know, if you... Um, if you save a man now, even though you suspect he's a psychopath and he then goes to, on to kill 20 people, have you committed a sin? Questions like that. And gradations, you, you knew what the sex... Talk about New Zealanders and Marinos. Uh, it was full, <laughs> of, full of case arguments about how far you could go with a donkey before it became a mortal sin, you know. <laughs> if you just caressed the donkey, wasn't a, was it a mortal sin? Uh, and uh, I, I knew what the favourite recourse of Spanish farm boys was by the time I'd read that. Um, <laughs> so, but again, the question of where's the morality in this and are you, a, to what extent are you a sinner, you know, a, the Holocaust always interested me because a lot of those uh, SS men were Bavarian Catholics. I, what if the Pope had um, forbidden them to join the SS, had prescribed the SS, A, and B, since it, there were a lot of Northern Protestants and Catholics in the SS, and they were conditioned like I was conditioned as a kid, could I have not by my parents, but by, by the whole Catholic thing. Uh, could I, not because I'm a Catholic, but because I'm a human, am I capable of obeying my officers and shoot another human being? And if you do that once, where do you go from there? You've lost your innocence. You can't be a martyr anymore. You can't say, I won't do it, as some German soldiers did. And you, but you're asking for martyrdom, so you hope you wouldn't do it, but you don't know. What would I do if I'd been 
a backside out of the trousers, Scots crofter or Irishman, and I arrive somewhere where there's huge acreage, uh, like Ryan, the convict, who ended up out in Gaylong and occupied these huge... And then the Aboriginals, who for some reason still seem to think the country belongs to them, think the animals do. They start spearing my uh, sheep and they might spear one of my convict shepherds because he's been messing with the Aboriginal women. What would I do then? And uh, again, I don't know. Mm. So that, that is a source of uh, my own sinfulness in which I still believe um, uh, is the, the one thing I believe in is that we are born fundamentally tainted and I think most humans know, as well as fundamentally gifted, fundamentally tainted, uh, the, on the way towards that next leap that Homo sapiens might make if we survive SCOMO. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, sorry. No, no, uh, but, that's all uh, right. that, These moral questions are the basis of novels. They are. And so that leads me to ask you, and I'm sure everyone will want to know, any aspiring writers amongst us, what, how do you approach your writing? What is that process that you go through to write a novel? Well, you, uh, I, I begin novels when I sort of know what, where they're going, but I don't know any incident uh, in detail. Uh, and the connections between the major characters are not fully developed yet. The sinews, the organic sinews of the novel between the people who are the people of the novel, the people in the dark room, which is your novel when you begin it. Uh, I, I think it's a bit like the first Maori or Polynesian voyages to New Zealand. There must have been a rumour that way down there was the, this abundant and extensive set of islands. And they have a rough compass bearing from their, um, from their myths. And they, so someone sets out and there are men and women in the boat and there are children and there are dogs and pigs and they're sailing by dead reckoning. So they set out from Polynesia and they know what they're looking for. And it's around about then, the set out that I, begin writing and put these characters into the, the book. For example, uh, there's a book I wrote called Daughters of Mars, which is about two army, um, uh, army nurses in World War I who come from a Methodist community across the river in the Maclay Valley in Kempsey, where my parents and grandparents lived uh, and I lived there for a time and you sort of know who they are but they grow as you write there is a stage where you have to begin writing to find out who they are and this is because I believe in our subconscious is in all, all the creativity we need to be readers and lovers and parents and it's all in there, and to make our own myths, all the um, ar archetypes and the avatars. And from the collective unconscious, you get from pole to pole the same sacraments, the same ceremonies, the same types of ceremonies, you know, a ceremony of birth, a ceremony of initiation, a ceremony of marriage, uh, ceremonies associated with death, so that there are echoes between Aboriginal ceremonies and Eskimo, Inuit ceremonies, uh, Yupik ceremonies in Russian Siberia. But, but and how do these, you... the, this interpretation of life as a sacrament with gates in it is something that comes from our collective unconscious. So you just got to start writing. Uh, the, the Yates had a saying 
only begin. And uh, one of the Irish writers had a saying that when I've got to find out what the uh, bloody novel's about by writing it. And in the first draft, that's so. You find out who the characters are because the process of writing brings in to play this part of the brain where you know things you don't know you know, including what is it like to be young? What is it like if you're an old writer? What is it like to be old if you're a young writer? What is it like to be a woman? What is it like to be a girl? What is it like to be an outcast, uh, even an Aboriginal? Um, these uh, imaginative tricks are all made possible by that unconscious part of the brain. And how do you trigger that unconscious part of the brain? You start writing. And you'll be in great bewilderment and anguish. How is this possible? The writer, the way you taught literature at school, the writer's in charge. He's pulling all the, he, she, pulling all these kinky effects, metaphors and similes and onomatopoeia. And a, he's sort of like a sound effects man in a booth up the back and he's totally in control of triggering your emotions. But not early on in the book he is, the book he isn't. The book is a runaway carriage heading towards a cliff. He has to get, he has to get control, he has to, got to work out who the passengers in this runaway wagon are to slow it down, to get so, control. So of. in this runaway wagon, do you have no concept at the outset of where the wagon's going yes, to end up? Yes, you've got a brief. It's going to end in your version of New Zealand, uh, of uh, the land of the long white cloud. Uh, it is... Uh, but that arrival will be made fully possible by the... Um, uh, by the uh, uh, finding out what the connections between characters are, which are often delivered to you from the same part of the brain that delivers you cryptic crossword clues. If you do cryptic crossword clues, there's a standout clue that you can't get for quite some time. And then it becomes apparent. You have a eureka moment. And it comes to you. Or remember you were playing Scrabble and you can't think of that actor's name? And you put pressure on the clerks and the collective, un the unconscious brain and then when you wake up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night, oh, it was your Brenner! Jesus! <laughs> Why didn't he? Uh, the answer has been delivered by your unconscious. It is a eureka moment delivered by your unconscious. And these eureka moments, these organic revelations and epiphanies occur, we know, in science also. So it's an interesting way the unconscious place with the conscious. And a lot of the stories about how to write, uh, for example, there's a wonderful 20-stone Irish woman called Maeve Binchy. Mm -hmm. And she said, write 500 words a day, whether you like it or not. It will be sometimes like writing uh, to an aunt who's you dislike to thank her for an abominable Christmas present. And other days it'll be like talking to transcendence. You'll be talking with the tongues of angels. Um, but after three or four months of 500 words a day, you'll have a mass of stuff and start working on that. Um, so does this subconscious, the unconscious, whatever you want to call it. Does it come from learned experience? It, it, uh, we're born with it, I reckon. We're born with all those stories in us, and that's how we connect as little kids to stories that are read to us, archetypal stories. But they become more and more sophisticated. Now, for example, I can give you an example if you like, if you've got... Yeah, because I, I'm interested in this, because, of course, here we study... DNA, and DNA tells us a lot about the physical form. But all the geneticists I've worked with over the years believe in genetic memory. Yeah. 
Well, that's we don't know another much. one. There you go again. You know, why... The sort of thing, why when we pick up a, a baby, Bruce Chatwin asks in his book Songlines, which I've got a lot of tolerance for, a lot of people dump on it, but he says the first thing we do, we are lost nomads. We have a horror of our home, of the sedentary life. That's why no matter, even if we live in a palazzo, we'll take a risk on a bed and breakfast for the weekend. And if a child cries, what do we do? We pick it up and start marching with it because there is that genetic memory in the child that wants to be on the road, wants to be on the trek. And uh, I, I think he's, he's right about all that stuff. And we know more than we know and we have gifts more than we know. And one of the methods to get those gifts out it's a pretty desperate one, it's the last card in the pack, is writing a novel. Uh, <laughs> or writing a play, or writing a memoir, and well, dwelling on the moments in the memoir of your childhood. Not, uh, you know, I went to Concord West Public, and there was a nice teacher there called Miss So-and-so, and there was a nasty, t but get into why the teacher was nasty and what that lost child from Concord West thought. But and it's also the impact of the novelist. And for my highest school certificate a long time ago, I had to do Bring Larks and Heroes, your second oh, major yes. novel, which set you on the path to a full-time career. Yes, indeed. It, that uh, was brutal. Yeah. That novel. Yes, it had a lot of dark. I was young and dark. It was dark. Uh, You've yeah. got to get into your 80s to be relieved of darkness. <laughs> I'm looking forward to you got, And if you're a Blake, you've got to get into your 70s to grow up. I grew up about 75 and Judy tells me that's pretty early. That's good. Well, you won a Miles Franklin Award for Bring Larks and Heroes and a year later. Oh, yes, and that confirmed me in my worst habits. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you about that winning these awards. What, what do you think about, um, you know, you've won the Miles Franklin twice in your career. What, what does it, how does it influence you as a writer? Does well, it, it matter? It does. It does matter in this sense that uh, writers are the kids in the corner of the playground that no one wants to play with normally. So they have great narcissism. They know they're better than all those flash kids that the teacher likes, but it hasn't been revealed to the teacher yet. <laughs> and they know uh, 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 at the same time they have huge insecurity. So they begin their novel out of a mixture of insecurity, which holds them up, particularly when the novel isn't flowing, and narcissism, because after all they're saying, I have a book which is so important it must be published and I have something to reveal to the world. And so, and your novel, you're often in love with the subject and the world convinced that the world needs your book but you can't even get your book written. So this combination of insecurity and narcissism is, is murder, you know. And you thought you'd be in control of your novel, and you're not, you're not. You're not till the second draft, because you've got to write the characters, and then the characters become apparent. So how does a pillar of the society who's gone somewhat crazy as far as her husband's concerned, you're gone feral, Myrtle, you know. Uh, how does, what's her connection to the gay cinema pianist. Well, my parents told me all about this gay cinema pianist and he used to love makeup. He used to come into Barsby's store and buy makeup. He didn't buy it for himself. He loved making things up. He loved making up a face, said he was a makeup artist. And he read all the film magazine. And so, of course, she is so discombobulated by seeing that her husband has had an affair with a 
Thangadi woman that he, who has, lit, you know, the choices of the Aboriginal women in the 1930s were very narrow and the poverty, their poverty was intense. And he makes her up. She comes to him for information about the Aboriginal mother of the child and he says, you have a beautiful complexion. And she, she's so alienated from her husband, she lets the town pansy, the homosexual, make her up. And then, as a defiant, she wears it home. That sort of thing doesn't come till the second draft. The sinews between people. They do it themselves. The, the character becomes slowly so fully fleshed the figure that you... Writing a novel is also like entering a darkened room. And the more you write, the more the lights come on. You know there are people around the room, but you don't know that the person in the third, set, third seat in is in love with the people second seat in from the left. The so, person in the second so when seat you're writing that novel and these characters start to reveal themselves to you... When you put the, when you walk away from the typewriter or the keyboard at the end of the day, do you still live with them? Are they? Are you inhabiting? Well, that's the, the thing about your unconscious brain; it's there all the time. I'm having dreams. You know what I took up in my late forties? Cross-country skiing, just in time for global warming, <laughs> and I became a fanatic. I loved it. To be out there skiing on your own terms, not like the downhillers, often pushing your way uphill and getting very tired, but to be out there in the, the porcupine at Perisher, this heroic set of rocks up above Perisher Valley, and to ski from, in winter, from Perisher to Charlotte's Pass, absolute, um, absolute magic. Now, I'm going to say something about cross-country skiing that's germane to your question. About inhabiting the character. Did you come up with one while you're cross-country skiing? Yeah. Yeah, you do, because it engages the subconscious too, because it so exhausts the conscious mind. Yeah. It's good, but I, I was going to make another point about it. Yeah, so, well, certainly when you start skiing, you don't know if it's going to snow that afternoon or if it's going to rain and wash out all the heather uh, 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 below um, the snow off all the heather below Charlotte's Pass, you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know whether they're going to be eccentrics who are going to delay you for two hours or whether you, they're someone whose ski's broken and you're going to have to bring a ski back for them from Charlotte's Pass. You don't know, you can only find the adventure by going on it. And that, uh, that's what a novel's like too. That, that's true. You've got to take that step forward, haven't you? And you've got to be it. desperate. You've got to be a deadbeat to want to write a novel. But, but Tom, a marginal figure. Tom, one of the, the things that happens when you write great novels is people option them to make films, don't they? Yes. And your uh, first one was... The Fred Skepsy uh, produced or directed the Child of yes. Jimmy Blacksmith, right? Which um, and they made a good film of an old old book of mine from the seventies about the armistice called Gossip from the Forest. A film for Granada made a film for television, which you are far too young to have seen. But the Child of Jimmy Blacksmith had a, a, a cultural impact in its day. Didn't yes, it? yes, and Fred's film is extraordinary. Fred Skepsy. Uh, it is very powerful. Quentin Tarantino knows it. There's a name to conjure with. Mm. And he, he showed it. He brought a 35mm print and showed it to 2,000 young Australians at the, who'd never seen it before at the casino while he was out here. And he did a Q&A with Fred and me about it. And uh, that 35mm on the big screen was dynamite. 
And it's a film whose time has come now. Hadn't come then. No, actually I was come. thinking that, that it's it, time it's, we screened it again, isn't it? Yes, it's... it's uh, and, and Fred... You know, Fred left school in the intermediate. A very intelligent bloke and visually intelligent. And those blokes are often better at reading a book and transferring it to the screen than... They often see things... Spielberg was very good at reading Schindler, you know, well, better than you'd think. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you next about, of course, is Schindler's List from your novel Schindler's Ark. Now, in 1980, you met Poldek Pfefferberg in his shop in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And this was a fortuitous encounter. Yes, I'd broken a briefcase and I went to a store. It was a day when the Santa Ana winds, with the enervating Santa Ana winds from the desert, were blowing in. And I stopped at a door, at a window that advertised a sale in the days when there were normal shops and normal shopping centres. Yeah. And this character, beefy character, not fat but strong, big shoulders, came out and said, so it's 105 degrees out here and you want to look in my window instead of coming in my air-conditioned store. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and um, I went in and this was Leopold Pfefferberg, Peppermount in German, um, a Polish Jew, despite his German name. A lot of uh, the Austrians brought in a lot of um, Austrian names to southern Poland, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Pfefferberg may have been one of them. But anyhow, he was a Schindler survivor. His wife was a Schindler survivor because Australians had a repute for credit card fraud at that stage, uh, Australia always punching above its weight after all. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, uh, were the, the charges on the credit card were held up and Paul Deck had his mate, another old Holocaust survivor, on the phone and he took me to meet his wife. Beautiful woman, he said, beautiful woman. He was very, he loved he loved women and loved his wife very much. And uh, darling, he'd say, you're, you're, you're such a dream, he'd say, if he came into the repair room. She was a Schindler survivor who had um, been a uh, medical student in Vienna uh, when Hitler came in. And she went back to her parents in Lwov. They were both surgeons, very distinguished but it didn't save them from the Holocaust. They were both shot. She came to Krakow from the Rav in uh, as a shipment of Jews uh, and into Krakow, and then uh, she met Poldek and married him, but she's very quiet. She's 96 this year, this May, she's 96. So uh, it's great to see people get to 96 when their oxygen was supposed to be taken from them when they were 22. Um, it's that and, chance meeting. And it's chance meeting and a great story because, you know, there is no way that Schindler's uh, saviourhood made up for everything else that happened in the Holocaust, but it happened... Schindler was small-scale enough so that you saw through him every aspect of the Holocaust on an imaginable scale. And that is the problem. You know that old saying? Now, someone wise in the audience will know this. Was it Stalin or someone else who said, uh, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a st statistic? Um, I think it was Stalin who said that. I, I've had heard it accredited to Stalin by intelligent people, and there's a supremely intelligent man up there shaking his head. So, um, the uh, and it's true, you can't get your imagination around six million. You can get your imagination around people who have a name, 
So you see in remotest Queensland, you know, there's a, there's a town with three um, uh, refugees in it that, that they're trying to ship out and the town fights for the refugees because they know their faces and their names. And to get, the novel has to get down to that imaginable or the account, the narrative has to get down to that imaginable scale. That's why the novel features people, you know, often features servants of emperors rather than the emperor themselves. Or per peripheral figures who are the lens on some huge figure. So let's just talk about, you've had a couple of your novels turned into films, or quite a few of them. Yeah. Working with Steven Spielberg, did were you pleased with the adjustments he made? Because there have to be adjustments, right, from yes. the book to the screenplay. Well, what I, what I found out from Fred, I, I hope that's been hearable all along. I keep, uh, what I found out from Fred Skepsi is that the director looks on the board book as a mere springboard, and anyone who whose film is bought for whose book is bought for film just has to uh, take the money and run and be philosophic. <laughs> Even, you know, uh, Margaret Atwood gets two credits on The Handmaid's Tale. And when she was here recently, I said to her, I see you have a consultative credit on the... Uh, uh, on the series, does that mean that you can actually have a say on every episode? And she said, no, it's just a mechanism by which I get paid. They didn't have enough money to pay me up front, so they pay me a fee per episode. <laughs> and they do it under that rubric of her being a consultant. But she said they listen to pol politely to what I've got to say, but they don't necessarily listen, and that's the way it is. Uh, now, Spielberg, however, is very consultative, and he asks about things like, is it better to film in Prague or Krakow? Well, Krakow has a particular look mm. of a city of fallen angels, mm. fallen Gothic, fallen, uh, and which is great for a film on the Holocaust, exactly right, and so, it's an Austrian city because the Austrians occupied it for nearly 200 years. And uh, so it's like Prague in that regard. It's a beautiful place, but Stalin seems to have deliberately put a steelworks called Nova Huta down the road. And all the acid rain from that has rained on the gargoyles and the angels of, uh, of um, uh, uh, Krakow. And so it has a that ambiguous look to it, very important. So he discussed stuff like that, but not only with me, with hordes of other people. Um, Poldek, I think he found me a relief from Poldek, who knew his mother. Stephen's mother is a tiny creature, about four foot 11. And like every woman of four foot 11, formidable. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Poldek used to say, uh, I know your mother, Stephen. She says you're doing quite well. <laughs> and uh, so, um, uh, yes, uh, but Stephen did consult everyone and he had lots of survivors on set and he had Mrs Schindler on set, even though Mrs Schindler later denied it, but she's there at the grave scene in Jerusalem too, wow. at the end of the film. So, um, she, uh, he, the, uh, but I, I understand what her problem is. Schindler dumped her in Argentina after the war and when he and she went broke on their farm and the Jews of San Vicente, a suburb of... Uh, Buenos Aires keep her, kept her alive and uh, supported her. And then he becomes this scoundrel 
becomes this byword for salvation, you know. Uh, and that's terribly hard when he's been unfaithful to you so many times. And he's, uh, boy, you could make a great movie about him afterwards. Yeah. When we were doing the interviews, I went to a family on Long Island and it turned out the mother was Gentile, the wife was Gentile, and she was Schindler's old mistress. And she and Schindler and his wife were in a menage a trois in Munich after the war. And this fairly good-looking survivor calls in and Stephen says, Spielberg, uh, Schindler says, would, um, look, it's getting a bit knotty with my wife, would you marry, and pointed to the girlfriend, she's a wonderful girl, you, you know, a desirable girl. <laughs> and years later, when we're writing the book, this Holocaust survivor, who was an engineer in New York, was still married to Schindler's old mistress, Ingrid. And they were living in high suburban felicity on Long Island. <laughs> so really, Tom, it's, it's just great gossip. Oh, yeah. Well, you know I've got a book coming out next year. I'm confusing you. I'm writing a book about a pianist. There's a book coming out next year about Charles Dickens' son who lived in the... Um, out beyond Wilcannia when he was 17 uh, on a huge sheep station out there when the Darling was the Darling. When we went out to the Darling doing research last year, a local told me a joke which is slightly improper, but I think, you, I think most of you have done your HSC. And he said uh, that Barnaby Joyce's lover said to him, Barnaby, do to me what you've done to the darling, only a little slower, please. <laughs> and, uh, gee, the, you... Well, I like the way you always bring it back to the politique of the day. That's, <laughs> that's good. Now, you've written uh, four detective stories, gentleman convict detective stories with your daughter Meg. What's that process like, the Montserrat... Oh, it was good, particularly since she's such a good worker. Uh, in Taree, I started school in um, Kempsey and then I was admitted to hospital that night in Kempsey with diphtheria. And there was a diphtheria epidemic in Kempsey and country people weren't injecting their kids against diphtheria because there'd been a batch of diphtheria used in Queensland which had killed seven kids. So they didn't believe in the... It was a batch that had gone off or something and it didn't save them, it killed them. And so uh, I wasn't uh, immunised and my mother was always guilty about that and ended up in Kempsey Hospital and then by the time I was over that, we'd gone to Warhope, the Venice of the North, on the uh, Hastings and Wilson River. Beautiful, beautiful hinterland. Anyhow, um, I started uh, school up there and I, again, have lost the thread. I was going I was just going to, about Meg, writing with ah, Meg. Ah, yes. Well, in that school, that's, this is the point, there were these kids who'd arrive uh, in the school on horseback, there was a family of three kids came on the one horse on a hessian bag as a saddle. And they were, had been up early, they went dairy farming, you know, milking the cows, and they left school early to ride home in time for the milking. And the dairy farmer's kids were a bit of a caution because they naturally were exhausted by the time they got to school. They still had the afternoon milking to do. And uh, 
But I thought, what a great idea. The kids come home early from school and they do your work for them. And I noticed that Meg had a great capacity to turn out text. Thousands of words. So I thought, if I can get her and I had... Uh, and use her in the dairy, uh, I'll never have to do morning milking again. And uh, she has uh, got very strong. Uh, we were going to write a chapter at a time, but we have a much strong, uh, a, a much different uh, form of uh, writing. Um, now, Tom, I, I noticed some people are going, and I do want time for a few questions because I could yeah. sit here and ask you questions all day about the Republican movement and Manly Sea Eagles, you're a great fan, I know, and also refugees and other social justice issues. But I think our audience would like to probably ask a few questions of you as well. Do we have a question for Tom? Yes, we'll pass you the microphone. Madam, we'll come to you, sir. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, it appears to me you just have a great intellect and I would not be surprised if you went home tonight and then tomorrow we'll announce you're publishing your 100th book and will be out the next year. And I just, um, Emma, am so amazed about how you can be so prolific. And I don't know, and you obviously, your eureka moments, you, um, it's, you are interested in everything. And I guess it's what interests you the most that will be your next book. Yes, uh, yes, uh, that's true. I don't know what's next, uh, but the, the Dickens novel, the idea that Dickens of Australia is a dumping ground, um, not only for convicts, but for the sons of the gentry who weren't good at Greek grammar uh, and Latin and, uh, and uh, chemistry. Um, Dickens wrote a letter about his son whom he sent here, Plorn, the younger of the two that he sent here, he, P-L-O-R-N, that was his nickname for him. He said uh, uh, to his teacher, I, I suggest that we cut out the Latin grammar and the chemistry because he won't need it in his rough colonial existence. So from about the age of 12, 13, he w intended to send... Uh, plorn here uh, and that is something that's interested me for a long time and I've doubted, I've dismissed writing it because I doubt I could uh, populate the skin of a gentleman for obvious reasons <laughs> but uh, I found a way to do it the more letters, the more I researched the life and the more letters of Dickens I, I read and the more letters of his children, the more dense their relationships became, uh, the more, for example, Dickens had a connection with Urania, a place called Urania Lodge, which he bought uh, for poor women. And he, he brought poor women there, women who, in, in some cases, so-called fallen women, women who'd been thrown out of workhouses, women who were seamstresses, who'd got pregnant from their employer. Um, he had all those in Urania Cottage and the bill was picked up by Miss Coots, an extraordinary woman who was the heiress of the Coots Bank. And um, he sent them to Australia. So he sent the women who'd been under a certain trial period, fallen and unfortunate women, he sent to Australia. Then he sends his son to Australia. Could the sons have thought, I'm, I'm a sort of reject, like these girls from Urania Cottage? Could they in dark or drunken hours thought that? So the more you research, the more fantastical it all becomes. And then I found out that his boss out in the, uh, out in the uh, Darling River um, 
was an early photographer of the Pakenji people, who, by the way, are the descendants of Mungo men. men. And so it just, the more you read, the more you research, the more hints you're given to weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and uh, as my daughter said, a heroine who escapes Botany Bay and arrives in London and is going to face execution uh, for escaping for transportation, and her life is saved by James Boswell, preposterous. And yet that's what my daughter's book is about, and it, it happens. <laughs> Sir. So the more, more research, uh, the more inescapable these passions become. Yes, uh, just a quick story and then a question. The quick story is on Saturday I was talking to a man who was handing out Labour How to Vote cards and I said, I hope Bob Hawke voted early. And he said, don't worry, he's only been dead two days, wait for the third day. <laughs> but the question was, you, because of your long relationship with this museum, do you think perhaps in the fullness of time uh, you may find yourself a place in the taxidermy section outside? <laughs> well, we do have a lab downstairs, well, yeah. It's, it's going to be a cheaper job now I've had the operation. <laughs> There's less of me. <laughs> Very good. And less you know, of me to get stuffed, so to speak. <laughs> you know, as you walk into the museum um, now, Tom, you'll see the footprints of children and they're the footprints mm. of the Mungo children. The museum That's wonderful, holds, those Mungo. Yeah, so, and there's a new film about them in one of our First Nations galleries here if you've got time after. One more question. No? Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for your time here today. Um, this may be a too complex a question to answer, but given what you've said about the development of character and the research and everything, do you find it more difficult to write a short book than a longer book? I, I f find it difficult to write a, a novella. That's true because um, I take after my mother. My mother used to begin anecdotes like, you, I remember one night she said, you remember that man from the Maclay, the Trevors, and they had that sister-in-law who was in the circus and his uncle died of peritonitis. Well, his, his daughter and son-in-law live in Granville. And I was at the hospital the other day, and, and he has had bad conjunctivitis or whatever. And my old man said one night, got sick of this novel-length exposition that went back to the 1880 floods of the Maclay and said, anyhow, he bloody died. <laughs> so I, 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 I wish I took after my father, but I take after my mother. And uh, uh, everyone has a backstory yeah. in my mother's and a genealogy that has to be recounted. You couldn't stop her from recounting it either. He, she'd just start again. There was... <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, there is no doubt that um, why Tom Keneally is in our list of 100 Australians who shaped the nation. He shaped our literary history and understanding. And he is, without doubt, in my mind, a literary genius. But more than that, I think today we're in the presence of true greatness. Please thank Tom Keneally. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.